We're another day closer to the start of college football season. We got huge injury news that will rock one of the biggest brands in college football. We've got a quarterback in the ACC that's saying, hey, let's pay attention to teams other than Clemson down here. But we're another day closer. That means we get more developing news in the never-ending saga of the Big 12. Greg McElroy, Harry Lyles Jr., I'm Jason Fitz. This is College Football Live. As reported initially by The Athletic and confirmed by ESPN, Big 12 Commissioner Bob Bowlesby is scheduled to meet with Pac-12 Commissioner George Kliakoff on Tuesday. The discussions could go several ways from merging to just forming a scheduling alliance, which sounds like something straight out of a reality show. This is what Bowlesby said Monday when he was speaking to the Texas State Senate regarding a potential merger. There could be uh, scheduling alliances, as an example, or there could be uh, an agreement to keep conferences separate, but to aggregate our negotiating rights on uh, for the um, uh, for our television or our streaming. Um, you know, they, they, this is going to make for some very strange bedfellows going forward. Yeah. Uh, these are these are unprecedented challenges. I feel like unprecedented should be a shot uh, uh, game at this point. All right, Greg McElroy, when you look at the Pac-12 and the Big 12, who needs this merger more? The Big 12 fits, and it's because they're essentially on life support because as of right now, Harry, there's not an A-list brand right now that's in the Big 12. With all due respect to the quality of play we've seen from teams in that league, including that of Iowa State, Oklahoma State, TCU, all of which have been knocking on the door of a college football playoff, including Baylor, by the way, who not just won the NCAA basketball tournament but almost made the playoff a couple years ago themselves, all of which are not necessarily going to move the needle on a national scale, whereas the Pac-12, albeit in a little bit of financial disarray in the distribution of their network, is problematic. They still have USC and they still have Oregon. And those two programs in and of themselves can carry the weight of the entire league because of the notoriety and the long-term history that those programs have. So I think that that's something to consider when the Big 12 is making this merger because it could be very advantageous for them. Yeah, Greg, and you know, I think one thing to keep in mind here, and, and Commissioner Kay kind of said this when he was talking about it, was their conference still has 12 teams. Uh, you know, I know that the move for Texas and Oklahoma to the SEC has a lot of us talking about super conferences, right? And those are two of the biggest brands in football going to already the strongest conference in every single way. But I think there's two ways that the super conference thing really happens here, right? And it's a power like an Ohio State that is outside of the SEC footprint trying to get into the SEC. And then that's where we start seeing all these teams trying to merge and do all these things. Or it's the situation right here where you have the Big 12 and the Pac-12 saying, hey, maybe we could join forces. And then that becomes its own super conference. So I think as far as these two goes, the Big 12 absolutely needs this more than the Pac-12 does. I think they could still stand on their own feet, albeit they're playing from behind uh, against the SEC like everybody else is at this point. Yeah, all I'm going to say, guys, is that good thing most of us are bad at geography because I don't want anyone to try and look at a map to figure out how the Big 12 and the Pac-12 play nice together. Now, all of this comes because of Texas, and we know that. Now, Texas President Jay Hartzell explained to the state Senate why Texas decided to make this move. I think about all the things that's come up here today. Uh, we want to recruit great student-athletes. Uh, we want to put them, put them in a position to succeed. We want to maintain a healthy athletic program that provides net benefits to our academic side. And the world is changing and has a lot of uncertainty and turbulence in it. And when that happens, you have to come thinking about what's the position of strength in that. And in our view, at the end of the day, the SEC had a greater position of strength than the Big 12. 
since 2000. Texas is 6-5 versus SEC teams, but just 1-3 in ranked games versus the conference. However, the Longhorns have won two of their last three versus the SEC with wins versus Georgia and Missouri in 2019. Now, trust me, Baylor, A.D., Mac Rhodes, and some of the Texas State Senators didn't waste any time getting their opportunity to troll the Longhorns when they talked to them about it. Many of my colleagues around the country, and I've spoken to quite a few in the last two weeks, believe that the University of Texas created this situation because they think so highly of themselves. My humble opinion, I completely disagree. I think it's because they felt too little of themselves. That's without a winning football team of late. It's in, in, spite, of our, in spite of our football team. We, we've been winning, just not like we like to win. Three and seven against the Horned Frogs. Um, <laughs> so um, maybe your fan base would rather lose to Alabama than TCU, so. And, and, you know, if you're as big and great as you think you are, you should have made the Big 12 equal or better than the SEC, and you didn't do it. I mean, that's a lot of shade. Harry, does Texas owe anybody an explanation in this process? I understand why everybody's upset that this kind of happened behind their backs, but, I mean, like, come on, guys. Like, it, like you could make fun of the amount of winning that Texas perhaps hasn't done in the past handful of years, you could you could say all these things that Texas should have brought up the rest of the conference, which is a weird argument, in my personal opinion, to make to be an athletic director, at another Big 12 school and, and point the finger over in Austin. Uh, but no, Texas doesn't know anybody, anything like this program is one of the most storied in college football. It's one of the biggest brands. And the reason that they got invited to the SEC is because they are that prominent. They bring in that much money and they still compete even in bad years. And if you're one of these other schools in the Big 12, totally get why you're upset, totally get why you're not happy with Texas. But, like, you're just looking silly at this point, like pointing fingers and, you know, saying you can't beat the Horn Frogs and stuff like that. I, I just – it's hilarious to me, to be quite honest with you. Now, it was really nice to see all those politicians take six hours to debate whether or not Texas <laughs> is doing what's good for the state of Texas. I think it's absolutely time-wasted. And I also think Texas owes nobody any explanation. Texas has an obligation to only a few people. And those are their student athletes. Those are those that support the program and those that currently work at the university. They don't owe it to TCU, Baylor, Texas Tech, you name it, to do what's in the best interest of the state. Absolutely not. No, Texas has kept the Big 12 afloat. And if you don't need any more information, just look at some of the things Bob Bowlesby said when he took the stand yesterday. He said, well, without Texas and Oklahoma, our revenues are likely to be cut at least in half. Well, what does that mean? If 20% of the league accounts for 50% of the revenues, then why the heck are they splitting all those revenues evenly amongst the 10-member institutions? It makes no sense. So Bob Bowlesby kind of undermined what he was saying yesterday when making a comment about the strength of Texas and Oklahoma. So no, they need no explanation. They don't have to justify it. Their program is going to be positioned to, to solidly compete in the years to come because of this move. So uh, I like it personally. I like that Texas is looking out for their own interests, and I don't think they have an obligation to anybody. Yeah, at the end of the day, so much of this is about money, and Texas is going to be just fine on that side. The rest of the Big 12 can't say that. That tells us everything we need to know about the split, gentlemen. It's a bad divorce, and everybody right now is just yelling at each other with a ton of emotion. All right, that's the end of our update for now with Big 12 News. Coming up, 
Can the battle for the starting quarterback job at LSU, it took a massive turn. Is Tiger trouble on the horizon? We'll tell you about it next at College Football Live. Obviously, the pandemic canceled last year's Pro Football Hall of Fame enshrinement ceremony, so we get two this year. Saturday, the Centennial Class of 2020 is inducted, led by Troy Palomalu, Steve Atwater, Edger and James, Isaac Bruce, and Steve Hutchinson. And then on Sunday, Peyton Manning, Charles Woodson, and my beloved Raiders, Calvin Johnson, John Lynch, and Drew Pearson lead the Class of 2021. Both days are also available on the ESPN app. One app, one tap. Right, LSU quarterback Miles Brennan has sustained a left arm injury that will require surgery, the school announced on Monday. In a statement, the school called it a, quote, severe injury, but didn't reveal any more details. Sources have told ESPN it's believed that Brennan has a broken arm. A timeline for his return from the injury to his non-throwing arm is, as of now, still unclear. Miles Brennan led LSU to a 1-2 record last season before suffering that A-season injury injury versus Missouri. Max Johnson, on the other hand, 2-0 is the starter for the Tigers, recording a touchdown-to-interception ratio of 8-1. to So we expected a battle. Now we're not going to get that battle, and it raises a question of what's next at the quarterback position. Greg McElroy, how much pressure is there on Max Johnson now that he's essentially been handed this job? Well, stepping into shoes like the starting quarterback at LSU, there's always going to be pressure. But I would actually say the pressure has been lifted significantly now knowing that he doesn't have to share reps. He can focus exclusively on himself without having to look over his shoulder and potentially getting replaced. I think when a quarterback doesn't have anyone pushing him behind him, then there's no pressure there. Go out there and sling it. If you throw four picks, five picks, yeah, it's not ideal. But hey, guess what? We don't have anyone better. So go out there, play freely, and do everything you can to just not worry about anything other than your own performance. So I think there's no pressure. And the fact now that he's going to get every single first-team rep to prepare for the season, he's going to come in more prepared. He's going to come in with better chemistry with his wide receivers. And I also think, too, he's going to put them in a position, I think, early in the year to get off to a good start and probably surprise some people because that's a talented roster, guys, that I feel pretty good about and I don't think enough people are talking about. So, Harry, let's stick with the pressure conversation, but from a different angle, right? Like, Coach O came into a national championship season under some pressure, wins it all, that changes, but last year was a disappointment. How much pressure going into this season is there on Orzera? I do think that there is a measure of pressure. Um, you know, obviously, the pandemic season was difficult for everybody, and, and they just had an atrocious defense. Uh, so, you've got your defensive coordinator switch there, obviously, with Bo Pelini out. Um, but, you know, having the national championship season that they had in 2019, especially that that was one of the best college football teams we've ever seen. Right. We all know that in sports that buys you a lot of good faith that buys you more time, things of that nature. But I do think that this is a big season for him. And I do think that something else that we have to consider here is the allegations against him that he handled sexual misconduct allegations that were brought to him improperly or poorly. Uh, so I do think that this is a big year for him. I do think that he would benefit from a good season. Um, and that this is not something that he can take lightly and, and that, uh, you know, this this year is going to be big for him. They're going to have to put up big numbers and, you know, win some games, perhaps that they're not favored to win. Because, you know, right now, as, it, as, we, as we look at the SEC West, they're perhaps third at best behind Alabama and A&M. So it's going to be an uphill climb for Coach O this year. 
A lot of people, too, Harry, have said, well, has he lost the locker room? Last year's locker room felt as though there was a bit of a disconnect. There were a lot of guys that weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Granted, some of that was because of just straight-up blown assignments on defense more, more than offense especially. So I don't think that's the case, by the way. I, I've been around Ed Ogeron enough and, and been around players in that locker room enough to know that they'll run and follow Ed Ogeron through any brick wall he lays in front of them. So uh, I'm not concerned about the connection he has with the locker room, but you referenced some of the things that have gone on off the field. That's problematic. And if they have another year, with the talent that they have on that roster, where they're hovering around 500, if they're looking at a 7-5, and five, then I think it could very well be his last year in Baton Rouge. So he needs to have a good year. And the good news is the talent actually has some experience now, and I think they have a, a different level of maturity that they didn't have a year ago. So I'm actually really optimistic, like I said, that this team is going to be a problem. And I would maybe just ever so slightly disagree with the pecking order that you have in the SEC West. I think Bama's one, but I think it might be 2A and 2B between A&M and LSU. I think given, the, given what both teams bring back, I think that game's a little bit of a toss-up at this point. Well, and Greg, to your point, the recruiting classes have been strong for LSU the last few years. There is a lot of talent there. It's just the farther we get away from that championship season, the easier it is for people to perceive it as Joe Burrow and Joe Brady and not Coach O. That's going to be part of the narrative if it goes the wrong way. Now, part of the reason we have these conversations is because, let's be real, everybody's on the hot seat when you play Nick Saban, and Saban has now signed a contract extension that will keep him in Bama through 2028. Have fun with that, Texas and Oklahoma. That is going to be a delight for you when you join the SEC. So, he's become one of the most prolific coaches in college football history, winning his seventh national title last season with the Tide. That's the most of any coach in the major poll era. You can see some of his accomplishments there. But of note, he enters the season with 256 wins. That's ninth more in FBS history. So, now the real question, McElroy becomes He's got eight years left, seven plus the one he already had. Can he get to 350 wins in your uh, – let's, let's go for it. 350, 100 more wins. Uh, are you going to bet against him? <laughs> I'm not willing to do so, especially if they expand what might be into a 12-team playoff, which would add a couple more games. So we're looking at a team that could average 13, 14 wins a year. Uh, on average, over the last several, that's been about where he's been, especially COVID last year. I mean, they won the national championship, so uh, I'm not willing to bet against him. That's, that's for sure. And I, I think, too, I mean, he's 70 years old, and he's 70 in October, technically, on Halloween. So he's almost 70, but he doesn't feel like he's 70. Anyone's been around him, they, they sense that youthful exuberance. He almost gets younger on an annual basis, so it's pretty amazing how long he's likely to be there. And I wouldn't be surprised if he saw every single dollar in that contract and he's there for every single year, Harry. Yeah, Greg, honestly, I agree with you. I think it's totally possible. I, I'm at a point now with Alabama where, like, I just I expect them to win every game, even if perhaps they've lost all 22 starters. That's just what they are at this point. And I think that's a testament to how great Nick Saban is. Uh, I will say this. I kind of hope he doesn't get the 350 wins, and it's not because I'm rooting against Alabama or Nick Saban or anything like that. I think Nick Saban has had a beautiful career. He's built Alabama back into this thing that just nobody can stop. You can only hope to get as close to them as possible. And I think that Nick Saban should go enjoy his spoils, go hang out with Miss Terry, right? Go enjoy a nice, cool drink by a lake or something like that, and, and just enjoy the fact that you are the greatest college football coach of all time.
Yeah, when you're the greatest, though, you never want to stop being the greatest. I'm just saying, and uh, Greg, you make a great point. Playoff expansion is only going to give him more wins in this process. So I'm taking the over. Pound the over all day long. All right, that's not the only <laughs> team that we're talking about in college football, obviously. Mac Brown and the Tar Heels came into last season with big expectations, but several of their explosive weapons are gone. What should we expect in Chapel Hill this season? Looking ahead to the college football season in primetime tonight on ESPN 7 Eastern, we unveil the ESPN experts preseason top 25 picks in college football 2021, the power rankings. Then at eight, it's a look at the games that will have the biggest impact this fall on college football live schedule breakdown. As always, both shows are available for you right there on the ESPN app. Now we're inching closer to the start of the season one month from today. We get two huge matchups in college football. Sam Howell in North Carolina taking on Virginia Tech. And a Big Ten delight. Mel Tucker trying to get Sparty back on track against Pat Fitzgerald in Northwestern. So, with these two big games coming, Harry, we'll start with you. Which game are you the most pumped for? I'm excited for this Northwestern Michigan State game. I know that sounds kind of weird, but honestly, I want to see how Mel Tucker's going to have this Michigan State team looking. He came into a really, really bad situation last year. Obviously, with the pandemic, he did not have a spring to get his guys ready. He came in after the February signing period, so he didn't have a whole lot to work with there. Uh, one of their bigger ones last year came against Northwestern, so from their perspective, I know Pat Fitzgerald is going to have that team ready to go. They lost last year's team, but I think this is one of those classic Big Ten matchups that at the very least should be an entertaining game to start off the season. I can promise you that game's going to be physical. <laughs> Will there be a lot of speed on display? That's to be determined, and I hope for both their sake they're a little faster and more athletic this year. The game that I'm paying more attention to is the athletic game. That's the game between North Carolina and Virginia Tech. And, guys, this is Justin Fuente's swan song. If they don't get things going in the right direction at Virginia Tech, he came in and said, hey, we're going to score a bunch of points. We're going to develop quarterbacks. And it hasn't really worked. They've had two sub-500 seasons, especially last year, where they were atrocious on the defensive side of the football by their standards and very inconsistent offensively. And then conversely, you got a team in North Carolina the first week of the year, a lot of people thinking they're the dark horse, the darling in the ACC. But there's a lot of pieces to replace around Sam Howell. So this is a massive game. It wouldn't shock me, guys, if the winner of this game found themselves winning the Coastal Division of the ACC and representing that side of the league in the ACC championship. So to think you have this one in week one is pretty remarkable. You know, you mentioned the talent, and I think we all saw that when we were prepping for the draft. Like, there's a moment where you're reminded how much NFL-caliber talent was on the offensive side of the ball, particularly for North Carolina. Harry, when you look at North Carolina, what should we expect from them this year? Uh, look, we're going to have to hope, or at least they're going to have to hope, that Sam Howell really plays a little bit more precisely this year just because of that talent that you guys mentioned. It's not going to be there. And that's not to say that they don't have other talent behind them ready to come up, but you lost a lot of actual, real first-round, second-round NFL talent. 
And so, yeah, he's going to have to be a little bit more perfect this year. I think that obviously he's going to be in the Heisman race. But I think another thing with his Carolina team is they return 10 guys on defense. And that is going to hopefully for Sam Howell be something that he could lean on a little bit more, but also a side of the football that they can create turnovers and things of that nature to help them kind of keep this thing on the wheels. And it doesn't hurt that they are avoiding Clemson on the schedule. I mean, Greg, how important is it for the ACC overall to have a team like North Carolina step up and be really good? Doesn't necessarily have to be North Carolina. It could be Miami. It could be Virginia Tech. Guys, don't sleep on NC State. They're going to be good, too. So it doesn't really matter, but there needs to be some quality depth in the league. We've seen years, like two years ago, where the ACC was Clemson and then a bunch of teams that were at eight or nine wins, very average teams that were extremely inconsistent. That's not good for the league. Last year, Notre Dame being in the ACC was a real benefit because it made the conference championship game, the biggest game on the schedule for the ACC, it made it extremely compelling. And a lot of storylines going into that game because Notre Dame beat Clemson in the regular season. So I think North Carolina needs to step up and play big. I think Miami needs to have a really good performance in week one against Alabama. I think Florida State has a huge opportunity in week one against Notre Dame hosting the Irish. The Irish having to fill a lot of holes. And then the aforementioned Virginia Tech and a few other teams too. So there's a lot of teams I'm expecting to grow significantly. And I actually think that when we fast forward to the end of the year, the ACC is going to be viewed alongside that of the SEC and the Big Ten as one of the deeper, more quality leagues when that hasn't been the case in recent years. I think the reason I, I focus on the need for North Carolina to be good is partially because we fell in love with Mac Brown and fell in love with the job he's done recruiting. It's also the establishment of a new brand as a football team. It felt like North Carolina was taking a big step forward. Miami's been there before, so uh, that's part of it. Speaking of all conferences, we've got some media days that you need to know about. AAC media days coming up tomorrow, which means somehow, some way, we'll again be talking about super conferences and playoff expansions because that's what we do every single day, and it's all Texas's and Oklahoma, Oklahoma's fault. I don't know if Texas's is really the right way to say that, but I'm not smart enough to know. <laughs> All right, we appreciate you guys hanging out with us. For Greg McElroy, for Harry Lyles, I'm Jason Fitz. Thanks so much. Be sure to watch the schedule releases tonight.